welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen, and I am really pleased today to be talking to Professor Michael Roberto. Professor Roberto is trustee professor of management at Bryant University in Rhode Island. And before that, he was on the faculty at Harvard Business School for six years, and he's very focused on leadership with a lens around decision-making in teams. And we're going to be talking about his uh, some concepts from his most recent book, which is actually coming out this week called Unlocking Creativity, and we'll be looking at the influence of, of creativity. Just kind of quick background on how I know Michael. Uh, we worked, uh, I worked for Harvard Business Publishing for 10 years, and I got the opportunity to collaborate with him around two interactive simulation cases that, that he developed, one around um, climbing Everest and the other around the Columbia Space Disaster. So um, it's very exciting for me. He was recently on Freakonomics, so it's like, oh yeah, you're on Freakonomics and then Suede next, so <laughs> exciting for me. So, uh, Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased. And just a side note about the Columbia Space Shuttle, I, I feel as though you were very cutting edge in terms of writing about that. Um, is that is that safe to say? Because now it's something that's so commonly referenced. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell has talked about it and other folks. So do you feel like you were really, really early on in identifying some of the decision-making issues associated with that? Uh, I think we were, Sarah. But- I'll tell you a quick story. The day of the accident, or, or maybe the next day, I, I was sitting at a faculty meeting next to Amy Edmondson at Harvard. And I turned to Amy, I said, Amy, we need to write a case study about this. you know. And, and, and she agreed. And we quickly, when they announced the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, which Congress and the president appointed, we actually learned, oh my gosh, we know a few people there. You know, um, or, or we knew of them, you know, and we reached out right away and, and, and kicked off the research project. And then we had the idea of doing this multimedia case, which also was kind of pretty innovative at the time. So, um, and then we got to meet a lot of amazing people as part of that research. You know, it was a tragic situation, but our hope is over 15 years, a lot of people hopefully have learned some great lessons uh, from what we've written about it. Well, it, it's fascinating, and a little part of me is always kind of excited when I hear it referenced um, as a, sort of the epitome of, of poor decision making and hierarchy, um, because I feel like you were you were right there in identifying that problem. And sadly, you know, people who who knew there was a problem, right, but who could not persuade others uh, that in fact that was uh, the case. Right, right, and part of that was due to the the hierarchy of the situation, right? And the lower level folks didn't feel like they had a, a seat at the table. Exactly. Exactly. Engineers who thought they were too low down in the organization to have uh, any ability to affect change. Yeah. Well, fascinating stuff. So, yeah. So in terms of today's conversation, we're going to be focusing on your newest book. This is your, your third book to come out, Unlocking Creativity. And there's a, a range of really fascinating concepts that you outline in here. I'd love to sort of start out by looking at the influence of dogmatic thinking and closed-mindedness on organizations. Tell me a little bit more about what you learned about this. I was really curious about the fact that, you know, experts often squelch new ideas from people who are non-experts, right? And why is that? And I began to look at that. And uh, one of the stories I write about in the book is this famous incident of these doctors in Australia who were questioning the conventional wisdom around uh, what causes ulcers. And they would present their research, which uh, was that that they believed that a certain bacterial strain was causing an infection, which was creating ulcers in people. It wasn't at all stress, which was the conventional wisdom. 
and they were being rejected at conference after conference. They were told that uh, they they said it was like as if they were saying the, that the earth was flat. And finally, one of them uh, actually extracts some of this bacteria from a ill patient and ingests it himself, gives himself an ulcer, then cures himself with um, antibiotics. And 20 years later, they win the Nobel Prize. I mean, they totally revolutionized that area of medicine, but they were rejected. And it was because of dogmatic thinking. What happens is experts, they become beholden to the conventional wisdom and they get close-minded, whereas novices tend to be more open-minded because you know, they don't know yet, right? So they're asking more questions and they're willing to entertain alternative hypotheses. Unfortunately, experts aren't. And I think this is one of the big barriers to creativity is that senior people in the organization, experts in the organization do grow dogmatic and they grow close-minded over time because they know, quote, what's worked in the past and they know what's true or they believe they know what's true. It gets them in trouble. So how much does fear play into that? Or do you think it has more to do with just the, the sort of the, the mindset? Well, the research shows that it, it, it doesn't have to be fear, although I think that is true in some organizations. But it actually, in, in experimental studies where you really don't have the fear factor playing in, um, they found that even creating the illusion that you're an expert in something can cause you to become dogmatic and close-minded, which is pretty incredible. So you're not actually an expert. They fool you into thinking you're an expert about something. And then they show that you become more close-minded once you come to that conclusion about yourself. It's so interesting. It's almost as if you become lazy. You do. You actually do. You don't search for information as much, new information. You don't um, look for new data as much. You do become complacent. So does this reflect on you personally? Because you were certainly considered an expert in the concept of leadership. So have you internalized this concept at all? (laughs) I actually have, you know, going way back, like 20 years ago when I was in grad school, one of the things I noticed uh, about faculty is some people stayed very narrowly focused in a particular domain and became deep, deep experts. And you admire those people. But sometimes you see those people and I went, hmm. You know, are they branching out enough? Are they exploring enough new areas? You know, do I want to be that kind of academic or do I want to be an academic like some of the people I admired who stayed in the same general area, but were willing to explore new ideas over time? And I I just decided early on that's who I wanted to be, that I didn't want to get too, too narrowly focused. And so I'll never be the world's greatest expert on one thing, but I hope to be somebody who's always willing to learn something new. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. None of us is. But I was, I, I thought about this going way back, you know. Yeah, that the idea that you're open to, to new ideas and that it's sort of a spectrum and versus like going really deep. Yeah. Um, interesting. So when you think about what this looks like for an, an individual who is at an organization who maybe has a creative idea or sort of a trailblazer in an, in, around a certain concept, uh, what what is what can they do? What can that individual do to to move past those perceptions? Well, I think one of the things that that you really have to do is know your audience, right? As somebody who has a new idea, who has something that maybe doesn't fit with the way things have been done in the past, and you can't just argue rationally. You know, these are the merits of the idea. This is the cost benefit analysis. You have to think emotionally too. You know, you have to think about how are people going to react? Let me stand in their shoes for a moment. Um, What are they going to think about an idea that really perhaps challenges their way of thinking and maybe challenges the way we do business, you know, and, and what our business model is. And I think too often we just stand on the merits of our idea. You know, we think about it 
well, of course people should agree with this. It's a better way of doing things. Instead of thinking, no, well, this might very well be a better way of doing things, but here are all the reasons why people might be reluctant to embrace it. So being able to sort of ask yourself, where would reluctance come from? And don't think the motive is necessarily a bad one. In other words, don't assume bad intent. It could be perfectly good intent. People may be reluctant to embrace your idea for some for reasons that are rooted in the history of the organization or their own history um, that don't have to do with the fact that they're bad people, right? And so really trying to stand in their shoes a little bit and anticipate where the, the opposition may come from. And I, I, I'm hesitant to even use the word opposition because sometimes it's not direct opposition, right? It's But it's a it's a concern. It's a reluctance. Sometimes it's a failure to fully understand what you're, what you're asking them to do. But being able to stand in their shoes in advance before you pitch your idea is so important. So do you make an analogy between experts and creatives? Are you sort of saying they're the same thing or how no, are you I, differentiating I, that? Yeah. yeah, no, I don't think there necessarily are. I think uh, sometimes uh, – amazing original ideas emerge from people who have deep expertise in the field. Sometimes, of course, uh, we have examples of people who are not actually, you know, they actually are sort of tangential to a particular field or domain. And they're the ones, because they're not deeply embedded in it, who bring the original thought to it. So it can happen either way. Uh, I do think, and I'm a believer that if you're looking for original ideas that should look to related fields. You know, you should look for connections between different domains because that's where a lot of breakthroughs happen is people will put together, you know, something that's going on in their industry or their domain. And then they look and say, but look what's happening over there. And do I see a connection to what I do? And be able to reach across, you know, domains is a way that a lot of new ideas emerge. Right. I know you bring up some examples with IDEO, right? And some other, are there, are there any interesting examples that we should be thinking about? Well, you know, you, you mentioned the Freakonomics uh, situation. Yeah. I, I, I think about Trader Joe's is such an interesting concept in, you know, one of the oldest businesses around grocery. And here they, you know, they sort of reinvented. They came up with something that's almost, you know, let's call it the anti-grocery store. You know, it, it doesn't have any of the characteristics of a typical grocery store. Um, it doesn't have sales. You know, it doesn't do TV ads or circulars in the newspaper. It doesn't have a loyalty card or, or you know, or, or rampant couponing. And um, for years, they didn't do any social media at all. I mean, it, so really the ability to look at it a different way, you know, Joe Cologne was the founder. Um, you know, he, he, he realized, look, this is, a, this is a whole bunch of people competing in this business for a long time, but they're all doing it the same way. And it's pretty hard to achieve superior profits if you just do it the same way everyone else is doing it. Another example I have in the book is uh, Planet Fitness. You know, the, the gym business is an awful business. It's very difficult to make money in that business. Why and, is that? And well, there's a number of reasons. You know, if you look at it from, a, from Michael Porter's Five Forces, you know, if you do sort of an analysis of the structure of the industry, it's, there are almost no barriers to entry. So you or I could open a gym tomorrow, Sarah, for very little money. We don't need any credentials. There's no regulation. And then the buyers, the customers have all the power, right? They're, they tend to be very fickle. They um, are willing to switch gyms. You know, they, they fall in love with the latest new fitness craze. And then they mm -hmm. fall out of love with it pretty easily, quickly. So it's a very difficult business to make. And people are often more loyal to their trainers than they are to their gym. So if the trainer goes down right. the street, they follow them. You know, it's so Planet Fitness, I mean, who knows if they'll thrive long term. But for years now, they've been one of the most successful players. And it's because, you know, as their commercials say, we're not a gym. 
or Planet Fitness, they they totally up, upended the the traditional notion of a gym, and uh, and they're not for everyone. Neither is Trader Joe's, right? So what's interesting about these companies I studied is they acknowledge they're not for everyone. They admit it, but for who they do choose to serve and target, they deliver this exceptional experience. That's pretty neat. Companies that are able to do that, but it takes really thinking of it a different way, and uh, and being willing sometimes to have people recognize that some people won't like it, but for those who like it, it's it's a really it's going to deliver great value to them. Right, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're they're looking at the industry in a different way. Do you think that they are also promoting individual em- employees or looking at the skill sets of individual employees differently? Well, it's certainly true of a, of a company like Trader Joe's who realized that, for example, it was a simple thing that they do, but they, they don't, many grocery stores will have their employees, they'll have a special set of employees who come in uh, on the graveyard shift, you know, working late at night when the store is closed. And they'll do all of the, the uh, unloading from trucks and then, and then stocking of the shelves. Right. And so the shelves will look beautiful if you walk in at 8 a.m. when the store opens. They're all everything's been faced off. They're all all full. Everything's been stocked. But now there's no employees in the aisles. So if you have a question as you walk through the aisle of a traditional grocery store, good luck finding somebody to help you. Right? There's no one there. At Trader Joe's, they actually stock the the shelves during the day. They've got employees in the aisles. Now it's a little cumbersome because the aisles are kind of narrow and there's people in your way sometimes. But there's also people and they're there and they, they talk to you and they'll answer your question and, and they'll share, you know, what they think of a new product and the like. And so they've created social interaction purposely, but you need a different kind of employee to do that. So, you know, I always like to joke that they, uh, they love to hire unemployed English PhDs <laughs> because, you know, their typical customer is a very educated person looking for a good bargain. And so they want educated people to talk to them. And uh, it's kind of interesting that they do look for a different kind of employee. Right. Yeah. And they're allowing those individuals to be creative in their own way. They have some bandwidth. That's right. I mean, they're not, they're not dictating what they do and say nearly as much as some stores do. I, you know, Zappos, I write about some of their struggles in the, in the book, but I also acknowledge that one of the things that's really interesting about them is that they don't force their customer service center employees to work from a script. They give them some autonomy. And it's really powerful because they're having more genuine, authentic conversations with customers. Yes, allowing people to to go their own path and perhaps uncover opportunities in their in their own way. In in your book you you write a lot about how people really within organizations don't necessarily look down on creativity, but they they feel sort of ambivalent about it. And that, you know, I get the impression that it can almost be threatening in some ways, similar to how we talked about experts almost tend to get lazy in their thinking. So you talked about Trader Joe's and kind of and Zappos and how they enabled employees to to think and, and be on their own. Is there is there anything else that organizations can do to really promote those trailblazers or those, those non-conformists? Yeah, it's interesting. It does start with the fact that people do have an ambivalence, right? And it, think about, you know, the, the great scholar, Chris Ardress, he once wrote about espoused theories and theories in use. Your espoused theories are what you say you believe, what you say that you do. Your theories in use are what you actually do, right? And unfortunately, people say one thing and do another. So we say we love creative people, bold thinkers. But the reality is that in many organizations, 
we're a little scared of those people. And we're a little, perhaps we're even threatened by them at times. They're quirky, they're different. And so I do think that, you know, as an organization, one of the jobs of the leader is not to worry so much about the boxes and arrows on the org chart and worry more about the kind of climate you create and the environment you create within the organization. Uh, Do you create an environment where people can share their ideas, can be candid, where people lower levels, lower in the hierarchy are not afraid to speak up? Being able to do those kind of things is really important. I think setting climate and environment correctly. And, and that starts with the kind of behavior of the leaders in the organization. Do they behave in a way that welcomes new ideas or not? You know, do they acknowledge that they may not know everything or not? Do they always speak first in meetings, right? Simple as that. Something as simple as that can be really important. Letting junior people speak first. It seems like as we learn more also about introverts versus extroverts and different communication styles and even, you know, having people with ADHD or who are on the spectrum within an organization, allowing for different thinking styles and communication styles, allowing for them to blossom uh, is, seems like it's critical. So I learned something interesting, you know, for years, I had gone out to IDEO as part of the research on this book and also gone out there to, to do some training to learn about different design thinking techniques, which is a creative problem solving process. And of course, I learned traditional brainstorming techniques, but I learned how so IDEO had mastered them and, and they have a number of ground rules that they use to enhance the, the efficacy of brainstorming. But I was curious, you know, in going back thinking about it. It's, it's a wonderful process for extroverts. It's tough for introverts. And then I was out at Google at a, a design thinking conference with a group of practitioners. I was the only academic there. And there was an interesting discussion around one of the practices that, that Google had employed in their design sprints was this idea of work alone together. And actually, there's some research to back up this concept. What, what it suggests is sometimes you need to give people a chance before the the dialogue, the brainstorming dialogue, to actually, you know, sit out quietly by themselves, think about the problem, write down some ideas, and then share them because they they just need a little time. They can't they can't jump in right in the midst of the meeting, you know. And so having these different techniques, being able to give people space to work quietly before they have to come together in that really high energy interactive session. Making sure as a leader, you're facilitating in a way that then gives them an opportunity to come forward. You do need different approaches. And so it's really interesting to watch out there with these firms that they've, they've recognized this and they are using different approaches for different teams. It's fascinating. It's certainly the, the work that I do as a coach. I see this as well. For example, in the biotech or, or pharma industry, those types of organizations typically hire scientists who have had more you know, individual education where they're working alone um, and yet they come into this organization and they're really expected to be promoting their work on an almost constant basis. And that can feel very much in, in conflict for somebody who is either not prepared for that or hasn't been educated that way or is not oriented that way. Yeah. Um, so kind of rethinking how to do that can be well, powerful. One of the, yeah, Sarah, one of the other techniques I thought was really interesting um, that again, I, I actually learned this at Google as well and was um, when you've brainstormed, you've generated a lot of ideas. And the, typically what many teams would do then is they'd have some discussion and debate, try to pick the best idea. And one of the things I learned is, well, you don't want to go from many to one. That's a very difficult thing to go from lots and lots of ideas, all of a sudden to say, let's pick the best one. 
But the other thing is the nature of that, you may find that some people may dominate that discussion. And maybe the best idea won't be chosen, but instead the idea of the most persuasive person, the most powerful person, the person with the most authority may get chosen. So one of the things they do is a simple voting procedure, but they, they don't vote for one idea. So what they do is they, they have this thing where they, they, they call them blue ideas, yellow ideas, and green ideas. And you, you vote for some of each. And green ideas are very practical. You can implement them right away. They're, you can green light them. Yellow ideas will put a, a smile on the customer's face. They're delightful. They may not be economically feasible, but we know they're going to delight the user. And then blue ideas are like blue sky. They're the moonshots. They're really out there. Um, and the idea of like letting people vote with stickers, you know, on these different color ideas, to get a much better sense of what everyone really thinks. What a cool technique. I, I really loved it. I, I love that idea. That's it's great to sort of um, getting the masses to speak in a way that feels safe. Yeah. And, yeah. To, and to make sure you're not just picking the small incremental idea. Right. Everybody right. sometimes in, in really organizations focused on efficiency, you know, they just pick the practical idea and move up and move forward and, and miss the maybe idea that's a little bolder, but that could really enhance customer satisfaction. It's awesome. I, hopefully more organizations will adopt practices like that. That's great. You have this fascinating chart in uh, in your book where you look at the three most important leadership qualities in the next five years and creativity by far and away is the highest percentage at sort of almost 60% percentage of executives listing each attribute attribute as, as critical. And humility is on the totally opposite end, um, which feels so sort of in conflict for how we like to think about leaders. I mean, oftentimes when you ask people to describe a leader that they really admire, that's like the first word that they say is that they're, you know, they're very humble or something like that. So tell me more about why creativity is so, is going to be so important, particularly in contrast to, you know, something like humility. Well, and I certainly, I like humility as a concept. It's, it, as you say, it did not shine at the top. That was a survey done of CEOs and public sector executives by IBM and creativity vaulted to the top. And I think the reason it did is that so many, comp so many executives are, are either watching their industries be disrupted or, or they're scared to death that their company's competitive advantage is going to erode. And so they're, they're desperate you know, for growth. And, and I, I also have this chart in the book, some research done showing that many Fortune 500 companies are in a growth crisis right now. Very few of them are growing beyond single digits. You know? And so I think executives are looking, where do we find new organic growth? How do we find it? And so naturally, creativity becomes an attribute they're really in search of. I don't know. I, I wonder on the humility thing. I don't know what, what that means. Why so few, you know, many fewer of them mention it, maybe because many of them aren't humble. I don't know. Right. At least they, at least they realize that in themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I, I would say part of the, the heart of the book or, you know, an important part of the book is this idea around these six mindsets that can really have a negative impact or creative negative impact on an organization. Um, and can you kind of walk us through these six mindsets and talk a little bit about where that you see the danger that could lie with them? Sure. So, you know, the, the premise of the book is that most organizations don't lack creative people. They've got people with talent and new ideas and, and original thinking, but we squash those for a variety of reasons. And one of the things I talk about is this idea that there's these mindsets that get in the way. And I, I start with 
the first mindset is the linear mindset. We've all been trained in sort of linear problem solving. Plan, you analyze your research, you plan, then you execute. Unfortunately, the creative process is very nonlinear. It moves and fits and starts. It, it doesn't work quite that way. And our, our tendency to want to cram everything into a very linear approach means that many creative ideas wither on the vine. And I, I look, for example, at, at why many large organizations that tried to embrace design thinking as a creative problem-solving methodology and poured millions into it have become frustrated. Some of them now say, well, it was just a fad. You know, you see people mocking it. But I, I don't think it's, it's that design thinking is a poor pro. I actually think it's a really effective process. But what people did, what many organizations that I studied did, is they took it and they, they, they saw oh, it's a five-stage process. And they tried to approach it in this lockstep manner. Oh, we can just move in a linear fashion through these five steps. But it doesn't work that way, right? It has five modes. It has five stages. But they don't work in a very, very straight, linear fashion. And I think one of the problems is that as humans, we hate to iterate. We don't like the idea of circling back, taking feedback, and, and redoing things. And so we like a linear approach, unfortunately, but it gets in the way. So that's the first of the mindsets. The second is the benchmarking mindset. Companies are obsessed with benchmarking. And I understand it. You have to study your competition. You have to stay on your toes and know what they're doing. You certainly want to look for best practices. But what I found in my research is that many, for many companies, what they end up doing is copying the competition rather than learning from them and adapting those practices to their own organization. And so they get fixated on what others are doing. And not only do they copy, but I found that many of them copy badly, <laughs> which is the worst of all worlds, right? And so this is the second one. Uh, the third mindset I, I talk about is uh, the structural mindset. And I referenced this a little bit earlier that CEOs are obsessed with the org chart. Anytime they want to Try to drive more innovation. What do they think? Well, we have to, you know, we have to move the boxes and arrows, and we're constantly restructuring organizations. It creates a lot of turbulence and uncertainty and fear, and I would argue it doesn't do much good because the underlying premise that it structure drives performance is wrong. I think culture, values, the work environment, those things drive drive performance much more than simply the structure does, and so I. I think the structural mindset, the idea that we can just move that lever, and the reason we think it is because it's the easiest lever to change. It's much harder to change culture and environment and values. So I think so that are gets you suggesting, to Yeah, so are you suggesting that, that organizations with less hierarchy actually perform at a higher level? or? So no, the, that's, that's what's, what's interesting that is actually, in general, I mean, I'm not a fan of massive amounts of hierarchy, but the research is actually a, a little ambivalent there, right? It actually shows that some level of hierarchy is useful. So the idea that just flattening the organization will automatically lead to more creativity is actually flawed because research shows that some level of hierarchy is, is actually important for organizations and for teams. So again, it's a very simple mindset. People say, oh, organ hierarchy is bad if I just flatten the organization. Well, you could have the flattest organization you want, but if you have autocratic leadership and a climate where people fear speaking up, it really doesn't matter what the org chart says. And so I think that's problematic, Sarah. That's interesting. So the next one, the, the focus mindset? Yeah. So the focus mindset is this idea that um, you know we've fallen in love with the idea of like, we just put people in an innovation hub or a war room. And we put them on a design sprint. You know, we give them five days where they can just focus on this or three months where they're off away from their job. And 
we have this vision. I write about you know you two uh, back in the early '80s when they they worked on this album when they decided that they really wanted to change their style some. They didn't want to get in a rut creatively, and so they went off to this castle in Ireland. They hold themselves up. And they lived and worked there and they wrote this incredible new album. And, you know, it was awesome. And that image we have, we love that image. Like, if only we could do that in companies, create a war room, create an innovation hub. But, but actually, it's not the way creativity thrives best in most organizations. That You need some level of unfocus, some level of distance sometimes from a problem. So I, creativity flourishes the most, I argue, when you have periods of intense focus, but then you're able to get some distance from the problem in a variety of ways. And I talk about Mark Twain as an example. He talked about when the, when the tank runs dry, you know, when you're kind of getting stale, put the manuscript away, pigeonhole it, he said, and then go back to it, having gained some distance from it. And, you know, you can be creative. He actually did this with, with Huckleberry Finn. He did it for several years, which is pretty incredible. But I talk about different ways you can get distance from a problem. It's not just about taking time away or going for a walk. It's about you know, sometimes it's about some level of, of social distance, like maybe a role play where you imagine yourself as someone else. That can sometimes help you look at a problem differently. Or maybe it's cultural distance, traveling and immersing yourself in the way a different country or culture views the same problem can help you. So mm. the focus mindset is one where it's, again, it's so appealing because it's so simple. Oh, if we just get people away from their day to day job, because today always gets in the way of tomorrow, that then we'll, they'll be creative. But it's not so simple. Yes, I have certainly been asked to facilitate a variety of offsites for organizations where it's like we're going to come up with these creative ideas in this, you know, twelve-hour period of time, and somehow come out on the other end with a magical solution. And certainly, you might come up with some great ideas, but it sounds like what you're saying is you really have to go through all of those stages in order to come up with the best idea. Yeah, you, you know, you do, and and it's um that ability to 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 look beyond when you get you get you can get so fixated when you're focused too intently and you stop recognizing new ideas. So two more um, a prediction mindset is this idea we're obsessed with prediction. We love Jim Cramer on on you know on uh, CNBC. We think you know oh, how awesome is he's going to tell me which stock's going up tomorrow. We love pundits. The problem is pundits are terrible at prediction, actually. What they know about is the past because they're experts in a domain. But this gets us in trouble in companies, too, because what we do is when someone says they have a new idea, we ask them to predict how big that idea will be. And the reason we do that is companies, big companies, only want to invest in things that, quote, will move the needle, meaning will they really generate a, a significant impact on the top line revenue of the company? If not, we're not interested. You know, the way that you hear CEOs say things like, we're a $5 billion company. A $10 million idea is just not worth investing in, even if it's a good idea, because $10 million just doesn't move the needle for us. The problem with that line of thinking is the underlying premise, the assumption is that we actually know which ideas will only be $10 million ideas and which will be billion-dollar ideas. And the research shows that we're actually not very good in the early stages of an idea at knowing which ones will be niche products and which ones will be blockbuster products. So the prediction mindset gets us in trouble because we're asking people to predict when inherently they're not very good at predicting. So they either have to overpromise and then they might underdeliver, or they have to be realistic and then maybe we don't give them any resources because we say it's just not a big enough idea. 
Yeah, I mean, it just feels like with all of these mindsets that it, this makes a lot of sense. I guess if I was a, the CEO of an organization, I might be sort of left feeling like, well, then how do I draw lines here? Like, how do I figure out how much time to give to employees to be creative? How much time do I, you know, how do I predict what's happening in the future? It sounds like you're suggesting that we maybe have some more looser parameters. Is that a fair sort of assumption around this or are you looking at more specific recommendations? Well, no, I, I think that um, what we have to do is we have to get a lot better at, we, we have to embrace iteration, you know, embrace that nonlinear right. process. So what we have to do is not say, okay, take a year and a half to ponder that idea. <laughs> Give, you know, giving people that time, that's actually not the solution. The solution is, now, actually, what we really need you to do is in, is in three weeks, we need you to build a prototype so we can go talk to some customers and see what they think of your idea. But yeah. then we can't fall in love with the idea. We actually have to listen to what they have to say. And if they tell us the idea stinks, but we have to go back to the drawing board. And that ability to embrace the iterative process is what I think actually is at the heart of it. So it's not that we have to give people time to just sit quietly in their office and we actually have to get them actively engaged with the people who, who are going to be impacted by that idea early. But then we have to get them to embrace the idea that it, it really is about trial and error. It is about iteration. It is about feedback loops. We're really bad at that. That's the problem. Yeah. This last one is the naysayer mindset, which feels like it was connected to our earlier discussion around the way we look at contrarian perspectives. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the devil's advocate. I think it actually can enhance both critical thinking and creative problem solving. But in a lot of organizations, you know, the, the devil's advocate becomes the naysayer. They become Dr. No, essentially. And they, they really stand in the way of creative ideas. And so what I talk about is the idea that it's actually who plays that role, how they play it, and when they play it that really matters. And if done well, can actually help creative ideas flourish. But in too many organizations... The devil's advocate executed poorly is really just rejecting and, and becoming a roadblock to ideas. It's, so I, Tom Kelly of IDEO called the devil's advocate the biggest innovation killer in America. I think he's overstating. I actually think done well, the devil's advocate can be a tool that really helps creative ideas get sharpened. But for a lot of organizations, it's not done well. So one of the jobs of the leader is to really think about who do I want to play the devil's advocate here? And, and then when do I want to bring them in? Not too early. Because I want to get some options on the table. I don't want to squelching ideas before we've even generated our options. And then how they play it. You know, I want them to be a constructive questioner, not somebody who's pushing their own agenda, you know, or, or simply pounding the table louder than others. You know, so thinking about how to cultivate the right kind of devil's advocate, I argue that's a really important job of the leader, that that, that can really help the creative process flourish and one of your jobs as a leader is really making sure that you monitor that effectively so that it doesn't become that dysfunctional naysayer. Right. How do you create a culture where that is understood and common, but also under the guise of positivity? Right. And, and so, you know, one of the things that you see people doing, Kevin Lofton is the CEO of a, of a big health system out in Denver. And I... Uh, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book is that he rotates who plays the devil's advocate because, you know, the, the same person becomes a broken record, you know, and, and people start to dismiss them. So that's a, you know, a cool technique to make sure that you get different perspectives over time. 
And then we don't have the same voice trying to always be the, the contrarian. So there are some small things you can do like that that can really have big impact um, in helping to provide the kind of critical thinking you need, but also making sure that you're not killing ideas too quickly. Right. And making it comfortable for people to play that role. That's right. And, and you know, one of the things in those early stages, like I said, you, you want to, I say, I talk about how our natural instinct in many organizations is to practice, yeah, but. You know, yeah, but it won't work. Yeah, but we tried it before. Yeah, but the boss will never go for it. Yeah, but we don't have the resources to do it. In the early stages, I actually argue for, for keeping the devil's advocate at bay and using the improv principle of yes and, building on each other's ideas, accepting ideas, just trying to generate options. And then unleash the devil's advocate once you've got options on the table that you think are worthy of discussion. And, and I think, you know, really effective organizations are able to do that and avoid that yeah, but phenomena that can be such a creativity killer. That simple principle of yes and can be one of the most powerful changes an organization to make. And it's, and it's so simple. Simple, but you know, and it's hard. It takes some practice, you know, and I think yes. once you do it for a while, you get better and better at it. Pixar is one of the companies that practices yes and, it's, it, and they've used it throughout their process of building great films. So it, it can be used and they've gotten good at it. Of course, they've been at it for more than 20 years. Right. Yeah, but it's founded in those improv principles, which can be a really um, fun and interesting experience for people. I like to start, often I'll start a workshop with some kind of, you know, activity that might enable them to practice some of that. And usually they're really nervous about it. But once they do it, they actually realize, oh, there's some real value in this. Oh, yeah, people love it. Well, this is great. I, Michael, I, I appreciate the fact that your book looks at both the experience of uh, as an individual, either as an expert or a creative, as well as from the perspective of the organization and what it's like to uh, think in different ways and what are the obstacles towards that. So um, thank you so much for being willing to take some time to speak with me today. And perhaps I can get you back on here in six months or a year after the book's been out and we can talk about uh, the lit next latest thing you're working on. Thanks, Sarah. It's been really fun talking to you, and I, I appreciate the time. Great. Thanks. 